This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score Lecture Series, brought to you by the UVA Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. On October 22, 2011, the topic was The Art of Aging. Our speakers are introduced by Cindy Frederick, Associate Vice President for Engagement. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speakers. First up is Denny Prophet who is the Commonwealth Professor of Psychology and the founding director of the Cognitive Science Degree Program at the University of Virginia. An accomplished author and educator, he believes that we live in a world of wonders and enjoy sharing with students the joys of discovery. Debbie Roach is an Associate Professor of Biology. She teaches a course on the biology of aging and her research is focused on aging in plants. She enjoys studying and talking about aging because despite the fact that we all know aging when we see it, there is still so much to be discovered about why and how we age. Denny and Debbie have a couple of things in common. They have both been awarded the highly regarded University of Virginia Outstanding Teaching Award, and as a married couple, they have a keen interest in growing old together. Please join me in welcoming Denny and Debbie to More Than the Score. Good morning. I um, would like to, uh, first of all, to welcome you, welcome you all this morning. And and what I have the pleasure of doing is 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 start starting us off this morning. Is, is okay. what I'm going to do is um, is first of all sort of give you an outline of where we're headed here. We're going to both be talking about um, things that we have derived from some of our undergraduate classes. I teach a class on the biology of aging. And um, I find it very exciting. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you sort of why it is that we must age and what is it about it. And then also I'm going to, you know, I don't want to be realistic, so I want to also tell you sort of what, what can we do um, to perhaps um, um, ameliorate this terrible condition. Um, and, and then what, what Denny's going to do is he's going to say, okay, if we must we must experience things like the diseases of aging, like Alzheimer's, for example. How can we improve, the, how can we maintain the quality of life, um, even in those circumstances? Okay, so um, to start off, of course, we have to start with Thomas Jefferson. And my only fear is that I may live too long. This would be the subject of dread to me. Now, I hope by the end of this, you'll understand that, in fact, it doesn't have to be all dread. And but this, this quote does get me to something that is really a myth that's very interesting that we must, we must first of all, get rid of. So what I want to do is I want to go back. I want to start with a, a Greek myth. And this is the myth about Tythonus. Okay. So Tythonus was immortal. And Tythonus um, was loved by Eos, who was the goddess, goddess of the dawn. And Eos went to... Zeus and said, please grant me one wish. Please make Tythonus live forever. Well, that was, that was, it was a, lovely, a lovely gesture, and Zeus said, fine. What Eos forgot to ask for was eternal youth. She, she asked for immortality. But, and, and so, in fact, Tythonus lived forever. Oh, what a burden, because Tythonus aged as he was living forever. And what happened was he continued to age, 
and it became this incredible burden, and eventually he became this creaky old man who then eventually turned into a creaky old grasshopper, and he was maintained in this basket in the corner and just chirping away. And, and, and Tennyson actually wrote a, um, a poem about him that basically said, please, please, I'm, I'm suffering here from this cruel immortality because, of course, he was suffering from the, the ravages of, of aging. So we certainly don't want to live forever. And in fact, no organism um, you know, lives forever because there's always some background level of, of mortality that goes on. But what I'm going to do today um, is, oh, first of all, I wanted to, to say that this idea here of, of living forever has been something that we have pursued for a long time. There's been a lot of interest. If you remember, if you go back to Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great um, sent off Paul de Leon and said, go find the fountain of youth. Well, the irony was, what did he find? He found Florida. You know, <laughs> not exactly a fountain of youth. So, <laughs> but, and then we have also, in, in art, we have lots of different depictions of this idea of the, you know, these, there's a, somewhere there's this fountain of youth that if we can just find the secret and we can bring all the folks here and, and they'll, you know, we bring all the old folks in, they walk through these waters, and then they come out on the other side completely youthful and completely recovered and, and, and have reversed this process of aging. Well, the bad news, I have to tell you, is that we cannot reverse this process, okay? Um, but there are, there are other things that we can do. And um, as a biologist, what I really enjoy doing is I love to do comparative biology. I love the idea of, of looking across the natural world and saying, are there species out there that can um, actually escape aging? And, and, um, and, and, and how, do, how can we apply these principles to what we know about humans? So I'm going to tell you about three different species. I'm going to tell you about humans. I'm going to tell you about lobsters. And I'm also going to tell you very briefly about my own work um, with plants. So, first of all, with respect to humans, I can't talk about humans without, first of all, telling you who the record um, holders are with respect to lifespan. And these are um, Madame Calme, who lived in Arles, France, and she lived to be 122 years old. And we have Chris Mortensen, who was the oldest man, a longest-lived man, who lived to 116 years. Now, I just love this picture. Because, first of all, you think smoking, you know, you're not going to live a long time. Well, actually, both of these were smoke. Both of these guys were smokers, and we got Chris smoking his cigar here. But you know, Madame Calme was also was was one of these great examples of the fact that, in fact, there's variation in individuals. There's variation between you and the person sitting next to you in terms of how fast you're aging, because Madame Calme rode her bicycle until she was 100. She lived independently until she was 110. And, and you know, what, there's a lot of interest in the biology of, of human aging to, to sort of say, what is it about these people who, who can live to these really late ages? What are the threads that are common? And there's a, a, just a whole, a whole lot of people that are looking at this to try to understand. Because we do know that these people who are living to older ages do, in fact, have a slower rate of aging um, than others who have shorter lifespans. So what have we learned? Essentially, um, what we've learned is, is that, first and foremost, 
there's variation in individual rates of aging. Now I'm going to use these two gentlemen here to help me understand that variation. Now, how many people think that the gentleman here in the striped shirt um, on, on, the, on your left is, is older than the one on the right? Show of hands. How many people think this is a trick question and think the guy over there is? <laughs> okay. It really is a trick question. They're the same age. These are twins. They're both 70 years old. And, and this is, so this is a clear demonstration of the fact that individuals, even when they share the same genotypes, have um, different rates of aging. And, and so this is, as a, as a biologist, this is a frustrating thing because the question is, how are we going to measure aging? And you know, one of the best ways to measure aging is how do you look? So this, it turns out, there was this study done. This is actually, these are Danish twins. And there's been a long-term study going on in Denmark with Danish twins. And there were, um, some, they have um, 1,800 um, um, individuals who, and what they did was they actually asked nurses, how old does this person look? And they just show one picture. And then how old does this person look? And it would be, you know, the other, the other twin. And it turns out that your perceived age, in other words, if you look younger, you have a lower chance of dying within the next um, several years. And so, so the good news is if you've ever had anyone say to you, oh, my, you look much younger than your age, that's good, okay? <laughs> that's really good. Um, so, but the trouble is, as a biologist, that's very frustrating because the question is, how are we going to measure that? Uh, it's, it's really hard to measure. But what we do know when we're talking about aging is that we do experience physiological declines. We do experience um, declines in our um, organ functions and that sort of thing. And the other thing we do experience is that an increased risk of, of dying as we get older. In fact, in the human population, every eight years we double our, um, our mortality rate. And so someone who's 42, for example, um, has half the rate of, of death as someone who is, is 50, and so on and so forth. And this is, um, and so as you get older and older, this, this risk of, of dying um, speeds up, and, and it's because of this process of aging. So I want to get down to why do we age. And I to, what I like to tell my class is that there's this balance in life between repair and damage, okay? And when we're young, the damage and repair balance is just great. And the most important thing in terms of um, evolution, if you will, I'm also an evolutionary biologist, the most important thing is that organisms make it to the age of first reproduction and pass their genes on to the next generation. Well, so in fact, it turns out that that balance between repair and damage is really good when we're young. And so, for example, if there's a, a, a virus that, that hits a young person, they, they recover pretty quickly. So what happens over time? What happens over time is that that balance gets off. And there are a number of reasons for it. And this is a pretty busy slide here, but what I've done is I've, up on the top there, I have all these things that are causing damage to our bodies, okay? Pollution, um, ultraviolet light, smoking, radiation, all sorts of of factors that are external to the environment are damaging our bodies. 
So that's no good. Then down below here, I have metabolism. It turns out that just our normal processes of, of breathing and, and so forth are actually creating what we call what are called free radicals in the body. And and so that that in and of itself is causing damage also over time. And and the, the phrase is every breath you take hastens your death. Oh <laughs> rats. <laughs> but anyway, so what what this all means what this all means is that we can't escape, okay? We can't escape this process. Um, and, and so that's why I mean, I've got damage in, a, in bigger, bigger letters here. Because, because what's happening is that that balance that we had early on is getting more and more thrown off because we've got so much more damage occurring in the body. And the repair systems can't keep up. I have an arrow, a red arrow, that goes from the damage over to the repair because even the repair systems are being damaged by these processes. Okay? Oh, rats. Okay. So now, there is some good news, okay? And the good news is that we can, you know, the one thing that we can do as individuals is that we can actually boost our repair systems, okay? And there are a number of ways that we can boost our repair systems, so despite the fact that there is all this damage going on. And one of the ways that we can do that is that we can choose our parents well. <laughs> in other words, in other words, you know, it turns out that um, a, a large portion of your lifespan is actually determined by your ancestors. And so people often talk about, well, my grandmother lived so long, and, and, and so I expect to live so long. Actually, that's right. Um, and, and so that there, there is a, a large genetic component to it. But on top of that, there's, there's evidence not only from human research, but also from research where we've, we've actually done experiments with things like mice and fruit flies and things like that, where we know that um, antioxidants that are derived most importantly from quality foods and fruits and vegetables um, actually help to combat some of that damage and so we can boost our repair systems through eating well and I tell you when I talk to a group of undergraduates about this you know I always say sorry I'm not your mother but you should eat your fruits and vegetables in fact it does it, it there's there is good evidence that that helps and also the processes of exercise it turns out that in fact, we have all these antioxidant um, defenses in, inherent to us. In, and, and what we can do when, we, when we're exercising is actually we boost those, those antioxidant um, processes and, and therefore can combat some of this damage. And so there are things that we can do in terms of, of lifestyle and things like that um, to, um, that, that will be positive in terms of ameliorating the process. We can slow the process. We can't prevent the process of aging, but we can slow it down um, by doing some of these things. So um, as I move from, um, from humans to other species, what I want to do is I want to say that, you know, there are, in the, in the biology of aging, there are, others, there are some species that are, can escape. And one of the species that seems to be able to escape aging is a lobster. Whoa, you know, that's, that's, you know, how can they escape aging if we've got all these processes going on? Well, um, it turns out that as a lobster gets older, it gets bigger, okay? And a really big lobster, like a two-foot-sized lobster, is a really old lobster. And 
And actually, as they get bigger, they can even produce more eggs. So they can produce like 100. A large lobster, two-foot-sized two lobster, can produce about 100,000 eggs. And, and this is this really an interesting process. The key to um, the lobster being able to escape these damaging processes is that they can throw away most of their body. Okay. So if you've eaten a lobster, you know that the inside is sort of all, all sort of very soft body. So, um, and what the lobster then does as it grows older is it, it starts in a shell, has a very hardened shell on the outside. And as it, as it grows, it has to, that shell doesn't grow. It has to throw the shell off and get a whole new shell. Okay? And so when, you're, when a lobster is young, it, it, create, it gets a whole new shell about five or six times a year. When they're older, they do it once or twice a year. And it's a really interesting process because what it can do is it can throw away the body that has all this damage from, all the, from the environmental effects. And it has a new, a new shell that's protecting it. And it also has some internal processes um, and, and, and protective um, processes that, that allow it to, to um, combat the oxidative damage and, and other things um, over time. But this lobster, this whole process of, of a lobster escaping aging is, is really terribly interesting. And, and you know, one of the, the fun things that, that I enjoy is, is, is learning about how, in fact, a lobster actually, what they, what they have to do before they go on, uh, before they get rid of their shell, is they have to go on a diet. Because, of course, what they want to do is they have to flip this shell off, and, so, and they, they create a new shell underneath, and then they have to go on a diet because, you know, around the claws, it's pretty small, but they've got to pull that claw out of their wrist. And so they have to go on a diet and sort of suck that, that, that piece of, um, of their body out and then throw it off, and then, and then they've got a whole new body. And, and in fact, there's no evidence right now that, in fact, there's, there's any aging going on in, in lobsters. So there are organisms out there. And what we like to do as, as, as biologists is compare what is, it, what is it that we know about the biology of, of, of these species that can escape and how might we actually use it in terms of understanding um, human aging. So I want to tell you very briefly about um, my own work. I don't work on the bristlecone pine. I work on plants, but I don't work on the bristlecone pine because, you know, here's a, here's a species of the plant that actually lives for 4,000 years. And as far as we know, it doesn't age. And, but I'm not going to do my research on that because it's kind of hard to, fo to follow one individual for all that period of time. <laughs> um, so, um, but there are species that do, species of plants that do have extraordinarily long lifespans. I actually work on a, on a weed. Um, this is a, this is, this weed's called Plantago, and um, it's, it's, it's found um, all along roadsides and so forth. And basically what I'm doing um, is I'm, I'm studying individuals from birth, from germination, all the way to death, and asking how are the patterns of aging different in plants than in, in humans. And the species lives, I've been doing this study now for 11 years. Most of the individuals have died. I have followed 30,000 individuals um, over time. And where I'm doing this is actually in Thomas Jefferson's backyard, in the sense that this is where he was born, Chadwell. And um, I have uh, permission from the Monticello Foundation to do a study there. So I've been following 30,000 plants over time from germination um, until death. And one of the things I've found is that on the one hand, plants are sort of like animals, uh, sort of like a um, lobster, excuse me, because you know a plant will, if we go back one slide here, you know a, leaves leaves die, 
and new leaves are created. In other words, the body can turn over. And so on the one hand, that helps them escape um, aging because we can, they can get a fresh body. But plants can't quite escape as, as well as lobsters, at least not this species. And what I have found is what I like to call condition-dependent aging. So here's one of my, my experimental individuals here. And what I have found is that when, the, when, the, when there's a, a stressful conditions, like what stressful conditions for my plant is lots of rain and, um, and what all the other, um, and shady conditions. And in stressful conditions, the older plants don't do well. The younger plants do better, and the older plants have much higher mortality rates. Well, that's kind of like humans. Stressful conditions, older individuals are less able to recover, for example, from a virus than younger individuals are. The, the, the repair systems for older plants are not as good as younger plants. Under good conditions, we don't see any differences, but when there's stress, we definitely see who's older and who's younger, and we can uh, document that. So to pull this um, together, to pull my part together here, okay, so first of all, we, we can't escape aging, but there are things that we as individuals can do to, um, to slow down these processes. We're never going to be like a lobster, of course. Um, but, but, you know, uh, what, as I said, one of the things I really enjoy is this idea of comparing different species, saying what, are the, what can we learn um, from, from different species and apply it to, um, to, to, our, to the human condition. And so, um, so I hope, you know, I hope what you've seen is that there's, sort of there's, there's good news and there's bad news. Bad news is we can't escape. The good news is that there are organisms that can't escape. We can learn from them and we can learn how we can um, ameliorate these conditions. Now, um, some of these conditions that are created are things like um, the diseases of aging. And so what, oopsie, oh, whoa. I'm not, I'm going to give, uh, I don't know how I, I don't know what I did. Hang on. Ah, okay. I will just, I will end here. Um, so um, what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to, um, to end. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to end with, with sort of on the, on the more of the positive note in the sense that, in fact, what we're, the, the field of aging is, is something that's actually very exciting right now with respect um, to all the discoveries that we've had. And, and some of this, of course, is that, we, we have an increasing number of individuals who, who are, are living to older ages, and so there's much more um, of an investment um, into understanding these processes. And, and I think that we're doing a really good job. The goal of the biology of aging is not to make us live forever. The goal of biology of aging is to figure out how we can preserve youth for longer periods of time. How, you know, the, the expression is, wouldn't it be great if we could all maintain um, that youthful, those youthful abilities that we had, and, and then we could all just, as they say, die with our boots on. Okay? It's this idea that, in fact, that that end process, that declining process, is very, is, it would be very short. And I'd like to end here with these two, these, sorry, these six wonderful women. These are Danish sisters, and they are all celebrating their sister's 100th birthday. And so with that, I will, um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to pass the podium and the microphone, I think, over to, to Denny, who will talk about, you know, given that we, that we can't escape, what can we do um, to preserve the quality of life?
Hello. So I've never followed Debbie giving a talk before. And I now realize that my not doing that was a really good idea. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is a course that I created last year and that's going to be taught again next semester. And the goal that I had in the course was I've always been interested in creating environments that allow people to flourish. And I was interested in, well, what could we do for people that are elderly and perhaps having, having issues with things like, like Alzheimer's? Um, I've found out at the University of Virginia over the years that one of the best ways to find things out is to involve the undergraduates in the research process and have them help me find out what it is that we can do, in, in this case, to, to improve the lives, the quality of lives of people with Alzheimer's. And so this is what we did. And we went out and we got a grant from the uh, Jefferson Trust, from the Alumni Association. And I thought I would put a quote from Jefferson up there as well. Uh, this is on the Jefferson Trust page. And it says, I'm closing the last scenes of my life by fashioning and fostering an establishment for the instruction of those who will come after us. And what I want to do is involve those students in the process of making aging a situation where people can continue to flourish. And so what do people want to do as they get older? Well, they want to do the same thing everybody else wants to do. They want to have fun, and they want to be creative, and they want to contribute to their families and to society. So what the Jefferson Trust funds paid for was I wanted to look at some new technologies, in particular the iPad and tablet PCs. Uh, the big winner in this course was the iPad. The iPad is incredibly easy to use. You can do lots of fun things with it. Um, it's a technology that people are not frightened of because it's obvious how to use it. Um, so that's what they paid for. And then what I did was I put together undergraduates with couples. One member of that couple had Alzheimer's. So we had um, 12 undergraduates. The undergraduates were put into teams, first of all, within the undergraduates of three individuals. They were pre-selected to have people that had some technical skills, some programming skills, um, some art and design skills, and some behavioral research skills so we could assess whether the sorts of things that we were doing, whether it was having the kinds of benefits that we wanted them to have. And we put them together with families that uh, we made the connection through the local Alzheimer's Association. And these were families that volunteered to participate and there was typically a couple. Uh, that's Sam. His wife is on the left and a friend is on the right. And that was the team. And so the undergraduate's purpose was to work as a team and create things that Sam and his family wanted to be created. They're going to they're work together. They're not going to provide things for Sam. They're going to work with Sam to create something that none of them could have created on their own. And that's part of the big idea of creating research projects that are interdisciplinary, allowing the students to understand that they can create things with other people that they can't create on their own. Uh, it was all put together with a graduate student, Alyssa Tweet, who works with me. And she's a senior graduate student. And the course followed both the traditional and non-traditional format. So the class met in a classroom, and there was content, and there was reading. And they read about cognitive aging, and they read about Alzheimer's, and they read about 
how art can have benefits for cognition, how it's important to be creating things to maintain cognitive uh, health throughout the lifespan. We had lots of guest speakers come in from various departments, both in cognitive aging, from architecture and building environments for people that are aging, uh, from arts and from the medical center. And then a key idea is the notion of interdisciplinary teamwork. We want the students to be working with other students that have abilities that they don't have. And again, the idea is to create things that they couldn't have created on their own. Uh, citizenship. I think for a fourth year class, it's really nice to get the students to make something, not just for their professor, but for the community. So typically in a class, as you may recall, you have a fourth year seminar, you, maybe you do a project or a term paper, and you turn it into the professor and that's it. You get a grade and nothing comes of it. What I want the students to do is to make something for people in the community that will be a lasting benefit to those people after the class is over. Uh, and then finally, empowerment. I think it's real important to teach undergraduates that they can do things, that they have skills that they've acquired at the university, and that they can build things that are going to be useful to other people in the community, and to understand that they actually have learned something that is applicable. So here's what we did. We put them together in groups. Uh, they would meet with their family. They would talk about, so what would you like, what would you like to create? Um, they would get some ideas, they would come back to the class as a whole, and they would make a pitch. And that means that the group of three students would say, okay, here, here's Sam and, the, and his family, and this is, a, this is what Sam wants to have, and our thought is to do this. And we'd all kind of sit there and go, hmm, okay, is that going to be any fun? Um, is that is that really going to work? Is that what you want to do? So there would be a discussion in the whole class before they would build anything. They would then have to do a rapid prototype where they'd have to come up with something in a period of time of a week or two, and then they'd have to try it out, and then they'd come back to the class and find out what worked and what didn't work. So it's a process of iterative design between the family and the class to build things. And what I want to show you is some of the things that they built. Uh, so this is Sam's drawings. So this is done on the iPad. Sam liked to draw. He hadn't drawn for years. Um, drawing is often a messy process, especially if you're doing things like watercolors. There are drawing programs on the iPad that are really easy. And so Sam did this drawing, and then we can save it digitally, and he can make another one, and he can make another one. This is an image that the students uh, got off of the web. And these are cedars from Lebanon. So as you're about to see, Sam came from Lebanon. His family was from Lebanon. And he wants his family, current family, to know about the family that came from Lebanon. He wants them to know about that. So as you're going to see in the movie shortly, uh, Sam really cares about his family, both the family in the past and the family that exists today his children, and his grandchildren. And what he decided he wanted to do was to create a story of his life that he could give to his children and his grandchildren. And that's what they made. So the movie that they made is a 45-minute movie, and it now it was given to Sam's children. And I'm not going to show you all 45 minutes of it, 
Um, but I am going to show you two minutes of it, and these are just some cuts. Um, Sam's a little bit difficult to hear, and so let me just mention what I want you to notice is he's going to talk about family being important to him. And the other thing that gives me chills is before we start introducing some of the pictures, he says, I made this. Today is the 2nd of December, 2010. Family is very important to me. With a little help, uh, we put together a video made up of drawings that I've seen, like, thought of here and there, of photos that I've brought up some. Drawings, paintings that I've put together myself. I guess I'd like to uh, give a little history of my family. Um, my, my, my dad was born in Beirut, Lebanon. My mother was born in Hamena. Sam started having problems with directions and his memory and it's been a battle, hard, but he's, you know, willing to do most anything. And he wanted to take the art class. And I didn't know what it was. Yeah, but we thought we'd give it a try. Necessities, simple bare necessities. Get about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities, Mother Nature's recipe. Bring bare necessities of life. So that's just a sample of Sam's movies and. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. So all of the, so there were a total of four families. I don't have time to go over in detail what they all did, but I'll give you a little bit of an idea. So this was Eunice's uh, project, and then it turned out to be a DVD. Uh, Eunice not only had Alzheimer's, but she had very, very low vision. She couldn't see anything on a tablet. And she had very, very bad hearing. Uh, which was a problem because when we created any kind of music or things that she wanted to hear, she lived with her daughter and it drove her daughter crazy because it was so loud. Um, we tried a lot of things that didn't work. And this is part of the, the beauty of this sort of project is the students' ideas, if they can rapidly prototype them, they realize, oh, this isn't working. We've got to try something else. Um, you learn a lot from failure. 
Uh, and this is what they ended up with, which Eunice was very happy with. So what we did is we created a virtual window. Uh, we put a large, we put a projector like this one, except smaller, uh, into a room, and we illuminated the whole wall. And we created a window where she could then pick the content from the window. She liked looking at the sky. And so there is in the DVD all sorts of sunsets and sunrises and pictures of the sky in this big image, which she can see. Um, family photos, which she couldn't see before, she can now see because they're all blown up. Um, and she liked to look at animals and birds in particular. And she liked to listen to music while she was doing this. Um, and so the idea that the undergraduates came up with, which is a simple one for them, but wouldn't occur to the family, was, oh, we'll get wireless headphones. And so we bought some wireless headphones from the Jefferson Trust Funds that we have. And somehow or another, we just managed to forget them and leave them in the house. And now she can listen to whatever she would like to listen to. Um, and, and nobody else hears it unless she wants them to. And it's made a huge difference for their family. So this is Jerry. Um, we learned a lot from Jerry as well. So Jerry and his wife used to travel a lot, and they loved music, and they would go to cities, and they would go to the concert halls, and they would listen to symphony orchestras, and that's what they wanted to recreate. Um, so we tried to recreate that, and we finally came up on with this, which is a program that they do like. Um, so it would start with, they would get an image of the world, and, and the dots are places that they had been. And then they could pick one of those places, um, I think this is Israel. And then by picking that place, what would open up would be images first of the theater um, and then music, which they could then click on, of a symphony that was being played in that concert hall. And they liked this a lot. Now, to back up a little bit, what they ended up liking even better was Pandora. So if how many of you are familiar with Pandora? All right. If you're not familiar with Pandora, you might want to check it out. Um, it's free, or it has a minimal cost if you don't want advertisements. And it's just an online radio that learns what you like. And so you select what you like, and then it starts offering you other things, and you can put thumbs up or thumbs down. And you train it, and then after a while, it just presents the music that you like. So these individuals are not computer savvy. They would never have found Pandora on their own. But this is another thing that the undergraduates are able to do. Being young people, it's, oh, you want to listen to music? Do you know about Pandora? No. So they would set it up. And, and I think they spend more time listening to Pandora than this. But that's OK. Um, let's see. This is, a, this is the next one of Jerry's. So what Jerry also created was a digital scrapbook. And so here is, you go into Jerry and Susan's virtual museum. And if you click on the center picture, then you're going to get the family photo album. And it's going to be accompanied with Susan music, because Jerry really likes Susan music. And so that pretty much accompanies everything in his museum. Uh, or if you want to look at Norman Rockwell paintings, Jerry really likes those, you can look at those. Uh, if you want to go into nature scenes, then you can go there. And there are a number of other choices. So what they made was a gallery 
and Jerry could navigate the gallery, go to an image, and that image would open up a world on those things that are represented in there. And he liked this very much, as does Susan. And then finally, we have Jim. Uh, and those are the students that worked with Jim and Jim's wife. Um, what was created for Jim that he likes a lot is uh, an iPad application. So Jim likes, Jim was in the military and he worked with tanks. And he likes to do things with tanks. And so one of the things Jim really likes to do is to get images of tanks that he can color in. And so he can go to the iPad and, and do coloring in and, and certain games with uh, tanks. Uh, Jim has two favorite places that he likes to visit. Uh, one is the Citadel, where he got his degree in Charleston, South Carolina. And the other one is San Francisco. So he can get a window on either of those places and visit those. And then finally, he really likes sing-alongs. And so they created an application where his favorite music comes up and the words come up, and he and his wife can sing along with it. Um, we have a lot of feedback from the students and from the families. I just want to read you a couple of the quotes. First of all, from the students, I found myself putting in extra effort for class because I felt my group mates and I could truly make a difference in our patients' lives, which I think sounds, alike, sounds a lot better than would make a big difference in my professor's life. Um, <laughs> And we used the information we learned in class to inform our project design, and we used our interactions with our families to enforce and deepen our understanding of what we had learned in class. And so this is what we tried to create, an iterative learning process where you not only learn in class, but you also learn by building things. And that reinforces what you've learned in class. We have lots of quotes from the families. I'm just going to give you two of them. Uh, first from Sam. Uh, the DVD that he ended up creating, the movie that you saw a clip from, from the very beginning, he referred to that as his bag of jewels. And this was the most valuable thing that he had to pass on to his family. Uh, and then from Pam, uh, she writes, Sam literally came to life in the class and found a talent he didn't know he had. Uh, Debbie, who is the daughter of Eunice, Eunice was the woman that was had Alzheimer's and low vision and hard of hearing. This process has been totally positive for us. Creating a product so specifically for mom is beyond anything I could have hoped for. This course respected my mother as an adult, whereas other activities we have tried seem to be too childish. And that, I think, is very important as well. So that was the experience that I wanted to share with you. This is a model of a course uh, that we created of getting students and putting them out into the environment uh, to do good for people in the community. We're going to be teaching it again in the spring, and next year we're hoping to start up a similar course for some virtual hospital windows that we're going to put into the new Cura Cancer Center. So I think both Debbie and I are available for questions and would love to hear your comments and questions. Thank you very much. Okay, so the question is, is there a place on the web where you can see more of these projects? Currently, no, but there will be. That's a very good idea. I, no, I will make it happen. That's, that's easy to do. We'll make that happen. We'll make the next class build it.
<laughs> so the question is, can we make available what we've learned from this class, how to do it? Uh, we're starting to talk about that and trying to figure out what the best way to do it. I was approached by a publisher of a free a magazine that's given out in grocery stores on aging, and we're thinking, well, yeah, we could do a column in that every month of just things like Pandora that people would not have thought about, or you have an iPad, here's a, here's a project that you could do with it. I don't know if that's the route that we're going to go, but we're going to do, it's a very good idea. Yes, we're going to do something. So, and again, we'll work with the undergraduates to figure out, just give them the problem. How do we communicate this to the, to the rest of the world at large? We'll do it. Yep. In the first presentation, it was clear that uh, the benefits to aging, the exercise and nutrition, et cetera, and I'm curious if there's some opportunity to blend what you have to go with what has just been spoken about, and how can we go in to people's homes and somehow have the outcome that people get better nutrition and more exercise as well as the, uh, the activities that were just mentioned? Well, I, I actually, I'm not sure that these two things have ever really been put together like this before, So, but I think <laughs> it's an excellent idea. But yeah. I do think that, um, you know, just as a society, we're doing much better at increasing the, the, our general knowledge about the need for, you know, good food and, and exercise. Um, but I'm not quite sure. You know, I'm, I'm, it's it's a good, it's an interesting question. It's a creative question, actually. Do you have any ideas? Any? <laughs> well, one of the ways to go would be to put people into the undergraduate groups that know something about that, that could use their expertise and integrate it into the project. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, it's, it's a good idea. We'll, we will definitely be thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be a good way to do it. The next question addressed where the idea for Dennis Prophet's course came from. So what, okay, so the great question. So this model that I have is one that I borrowed from a couple places. One is from Randy Pausch, who was a computer scientist who used to be here and had a class called Building Virtual Worlds, in which he would put together people with different backgrounds, computer science, design, um, and art. And I also got this idea, as did he, from Walt Disney Imagineering, because uh, they put together these sorts of design groups. So what we did is I, I tried to get people from computer science and from art Next semester, we're going to be better able to do that. We ended up having all of these students came from either psychology or from cognitive science, which is a fine degree program that I founded a number of years ago. And they do have computer skills. So the students had to apply for the class. We took an equal number of people that had programming skills, um, some art and design background, and behavioral research. Because again, we did a lot of evaluating along the way of what we did. And so ideally, this is what I want the course to become, an interdisciplinary course from people not in, in different schools that bring different expertise, and the students will learn how to work together in teams. But yeah, the, the students did wrote all of the apps, and I don't know how to do it. They had to be fourth years. Yep. Yep. 
Yes. Yes. Uh, I want to thank you both for an outstanding, stimulating, uh, inspiring presentation. I have a lobster question. Okay. <laughs> I know that's a tiny part of it all. Did I understand correctly that there's no evidence, at least at this moment, that lobsters age? That's right, yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, just because there is no evidence doesn't mean that evidence won't be found. So what, what your thought is on that and what, what sort of the, the state of that research is? Well, right. So, um, first of all, if you're interested in lobsters, I want to I want to suggest a book, and and that's it's called The Secret Life of Lobsters, written by Trevor Carson, and it's just a wonderful book, both about the biology of lobsters, but also their, the interaction between the biologists and the fishermen up in Maine, and and how you know the fishermen understand you don't take the biggest females because they're the ones making the most eggs. Um, any, any metric that we have looked at, so we being biologists in, in, in the field of aging, but any, any metric that's been looked at when, um, with uh, respect to understanding the processes of aging, we've looked at, we, we look at lobsters and we see, for example, that the ends of their chromosomes don't shorten. And so, you know, they, because they have a special enzyme called telomerase. And so that's something I didn't even talk about. So every, every metric that we have come up with so far to, um, to test whether or not there are any, there's any evidence at the cell level um, or at the whole organism level for um, aging, lobsters have, have passed with flying colors. And there is a reason for this. If I can just take, take one second to tell you, there's a reason for that in that it would, um, and that is because the larger females and the older females produce more eggs. There's a premium for maintaining those repair systems at the oldest ages. And so natural selection is, has something to do with this as well. So I think that there, I think even if we keep going, we're, we'll be, they'll be fine. <laughs> yes? Deborah, I believe you said that every eight years we double how they rate. That's fairly depressing. Mm. And yet, <laughs> Right, right. So, so I don't think there's so. no reason to tell us all. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm going to give you. I'll I'll tell you something that's that. What what happens to this this rate of of doubling of the mortality curve every eight years? And it's actually um, yes. <laughs> what happens over time is that in fact we this increase starts to slow down. We, we call it deceleration. It starts to slow down. It actually starts to slow, this rate of increase is doubling every eight years, starts to slow down at about age 85, okay? And so that by the time you get out to 100, and it slows down, it slows down, by the time you get out to 110, the good news is that it's not going to get any worse, okay? <laughs> the bad news is that your mortality rate is about 50%. So it's not going to get any worse, but it's pretty high. Um, so yes, we, we do have um, a nice understanding now when we, uh, of, the, of the demographics of, of, of the mortalities. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Yes? Uh, 
Okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, right, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and it is, it, it, so, so the question, you know, basically, it, it, with exercise, it, there is this, this funny um, contradiction there, you know, because the more, the more oxygen we consume when we're exercising, you would think that it would be deleterious. But for some reason, in fact, it turns out it's the other way around, and, and we're, we're boosting our um, immune systems. And there's, there's lovely evidence from, um, uh, uh, we're, excuse me, we're, we're boosting our defenses. Um, and and there's, there is lovely evidence, experimental evidence, from, from um, organisms like mice, for example, that, that it's clear that the, in, in the, the net result is positive with respect to exercise. So go to the gym. <laughs> yes? Yes, I believe so because uh, there's uh, yes, yes. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll defer to the. My, well, <laughs> so the, the question is, does exercise also uh, help cognitive aging? And the answer is yes. Yes. Um, there are tests. There are, there are studies on people that do and don't exercise and cognitive you know, tests over time of cognitive performance. And and actually, there's also I believe there's also evidence from mice that oh, where you. Um, um, mice, mice that are aging, and, and you've got mice of different ages that have been um, that have slower rates of aging because of um, of exercise and and, um, and also caloric restriction types of th um, manipulations, and they they actually are better able to manage mazes and things like that. Yes, yeah, at the table, yeah. to think about faith communities which are existing intergenerational communities and how they could be places where this could happen, um, bringing people together in this unique way. It's different. Often in churches and other faith communities, the ministry to older people is by older people only and not putting people together. Yes, so that... So the question is, there are naturally occurring communities like faith communities where young people are put together with old people to do things. And my hope for the course is not that the course takes on that job, but the students from that course realize when they go to the community after they graduate that they can help facilitate these sorts of, of naturally occurring relationships between older people and younger people. There's a question over here. Yeah. So the question was, did we look at cognitive functioning in the people that we worked with? No, we didn't. Um, you know, our sample size is too small. The time of the intervention is too small. And that's not really what we were after. I mean, what we were after was quality of life. Um, there are some reasons to believe that long-term experience to creative activities is much better for facilitating cognitive aging than simply doing things like crossword puzzles. So there was an elegant study where people were given the opportunity to either work on quilts. Um, they set up a, a laboratory in a shopping mall where they had space and those people could either participate in a quilt-making project or in learning Photoshop. 
And these had real benefits in cognitive testing, but it was over a longer duration of time than we have, and over many more people. But we would love to do that if we had a big enough program. Yeah. Yes. So if you didn't hear the question is, do we involve medical students? And the answer is currently no. But we've only taught the course once. Uh, would we like to? Sure. Will we be able to? I suspect we can if this grows as I would like it to grow. In the project that we hope to get going in a year in the Curry Cancer Center, we will be involving people from the medical school, obviously. Well, uh, as, as a plant biologist, I've not, I have not actually <laughs> looked at the, the impact of communities, but I, but I actually I do talk to you know, people who, who study aging in, in, okay. in humans. And, and, and one of the things that's, that's very clear is, is that social networking is something that contributes to, um, you know, to um, lifespan and and to a, a positive um, positive outlooks and and so forth and and so I, I I actually think that these you know communities are are one way that that's created um, either through retirement communities, church communities, or what have you. So some so social bonding is actually something that's that's quite important in terms of um, uh, individuals' well-being. Yes. Um, well, I, probably a couple things. One of them is Alzheimer's doesn't mean that you can't have fun and create things and enjoy life and contribute to the community um, and that there are ways of helping to make that happen. Um, and the other thing, I think, is the recognition that the undergraduates at this university are an amazing resource and that what I hope happens in the future is we use them for an engine of creating a better world because they're ready to do it now. We, they don't have to wait until they get into the workforce. Um, we should be working on them now. They, have a, they know a lot. They're very creative. They have an enormous amount of energy. And they can certainly teach the faculty as much as we can teach them. There's time for one more question. So I, for those that couldn't hear, what I think I heard was that um, she is working for the local Alzheimer's Association, that they are working on art projects, and that, that it is happening. You know, one of my hopes is some of the things that we learn could be communicated to the Alzheimer's Association, which we did work closely with, to give them some ideas of things that they could do. So I'd like to thank you all very much for your attention. Great talk and wonderful questions. Thank you for your participation today. On behalf of the Alumni Association and the Office of Engagement, we have gifts for our speakers today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time and your effort.